One week out from Gallifrey One, it's time to take stock of what we saw at the family reunion. We bid farewell to an iconic carpet and take one last look at a convention every Doctor Who fan should experience at least once. We catch up with Jody Hauser and Rachel Stott for more about their 13th Doctor comic. And then we wrap things up with an important announcement. You're listening to This Week in Time Travel. Sorry, we've been away for a few days, but Gallifrey One is a time-consuming beast on the preparation end and the recovery end. Uh, especially since this year's con crud was a bit of a beast. Uh, my goodness, I didn't even get con crud, but I still felt tired for days afterwards. Know the feeling. Uh, we are going to take some time on this episode to celebrate some of the highlights of the convention then we're going to catch up with Rachel Stott and Jody Hauser in person to talk about that comic of theirs that we've been such fans of. Then there's going to be an important announcement at the end of the podcast, so make sure you stick around for that. But first, we're going to talk about some of our favorite things from Gallifrey One this just past weekend. And... Uh, I think uh, I'll kick it off to start with, uh, with some of my favorite moments. As those of you who have been listening for the past couple of episodes will have known, Gallifrey One does an academic track every year. And we had organizers Joy Piedmont and Paul Booth here to talk about the academic track this year and give us a little bit of a preview of what we might see. And wow, did it absolutely live up to expectations. Ty Gooden gave the keynote address about representation for fans and particularly women of color in Doctor Who fandom within fandom at large, but also specifically in convention spaces. And it was a really fantastic keynote. There are some tweets up on my account recounting the conversation. We think there's going to be some follow-up materials released sometime soon-ish, but it really is sort of a must-see or must-read talk from Ty about the important work that we really still have left to do to ensure that the voices of women of color are heard and represented and uplifted in fandom. Yeah, that was a really, really powerful thing that is rarely talked about in convention circles or in just the general public. And it just set the perfect tone for the entire academic track, which was very inclusive, very thoughtful. Some of the highlights there, Michaela McMonaco had a really powerful talk about asexuality and aromanticism in Doctor Who fandom. I really enjoyed, oh, I am blanking on her name. She goes by Non Elvis on Twitter. The person who runs whofic.com had a statistical breakdown of basically everything in fanfic, and it was the most delightfully nerdy thing but not quite as delightfully nerdy as Liz Miles, who did this amazing presentation about law and legal systems on Gallifrey, which was just 
a kind of amazing exploration of all the times that we see any sort of legal system discussed in Doctor Who and how it's borrowing from all these various legal traditions. And I'm forever upset that Liz had to shorten her talk down to fit in the time for the academic track. And we didn't get to hear about a constitutional convention on Gallifrey. I'm still waiting to figure out what might have happened in that. I would like to hear this big finish quality content suggestion for you here in the future. Constitutional conventions on Gallifrey. I mean, just saying the morning of as she was still tweaking her presentation, Liz asks me what I know, excuse me, what I think I know about constitutional law and what constitutional law means. And I answered poorly. And that helped her refine her, make her make her presentation more idiot proof. Because apparently I was an idiot. Uh, no, that was that was great. A lot of the um, a lot of the academic track offerings have been repurposed and have been made available online in one form or another. Uh, Tom Dickinson had a great one about ethics that it was half hilarious slideshow deck and half the good place, mm-hmm. and uh, he's going to turn that into a video someday. So. All of that stuff was really, really good. The academic track, I think, is the most exciting and interesting part of Gallifrey One's programming right now, and more people should get into it. There were also a couple of fantastic game shows throughout the weekend. One particular highlight was the Cornell Collective, hosted every year by Paul Cornell. The game show so good, they had to stop recording it. So that way, it was something that you had to really appreciate in person. It was a fantastic time this year, especially because someone decided it was a brilliant idea to put Riley Silverman and Rachel Stott together over at the side of the panel, and their energy feeding off of each other is just... Just absolutely chaotic brilliance and it is delight uh, and everybody was having a fantastic time. I laughed so hard that I cried but also there were just times where I cried because it was so good and then of course on Sunday there was Verity's In Defense Of of which I briefly appeared to defend the topic for 45 seconds that all podcasts should be cancelled and then I got kicked off very quickly so do not cancel all podcasts because I lost that one mm. going back to Cornell Collective Riley Silverman is not just chaotic brilliance she's just brilliance period because she knew it was coming but she didn't know exactly how that uh, she was going to be called on to randomly interview a random Doctor Who celebrity for four minutes without knowing who it was going to be or what and who should show up but composer and Doctor Who restoration team supporter Mark Ayers. It was a solid four-minute interview, just on the fly, no preparation. Uh, it was actually better than a lot of the interviews that I've seen that have had preparation. So, like, well done, Riley. Uh-huh. She knows how to do it. What else? So many 13th Doctors. So much 13th Doctor love in the hallways. I was kind of wondering what it was going to be like, you know, as divided as fandom has appeared on social media and stuff about uh, Series 11. The love for Series 11, or at least the cast of Series 11, was completely evident in the halls and in the ballrooms at Galley. It was really fantastic. I did cosplay on Friday as the 13th Doctor, and I just had so much fun out there. There were so many fantastic cosplayers that were there. There was also someone who was cosplaying as the frog and would go around and stop 13th Doctor cosplayers and like pretend to be like 
you know, pushing them back into our dimension. So there's some great photo of me floating somewhere on the internet doing that. Laura Syracle, I'm so sorry, Laura, I hope I got your name correctly there, uh, was dressed as the Kerblam box. So she had a, a box around her, like her entire body. And there was all of the uh, bubble wrap spilling out of it. And then the fez there, the doctor's fez, which was great. She also like had a little slot for people to drop in ribbons because she couldn't get her arms out of the box. So you had to come and drop ribbons into the slot in the box. And there was a Kerblam man too, like a really scarily good Kerblam man costume. I'm just kind of really amazed at what all of the cosplayers do. Like, I have seen some of the best cosplay in my life at this convention of robots and aliens and finding new and creative, clever ways to make these costumes look amazing in person. I was actually talking to one of the hotel staff over at the front desk, and he said that, you know, they get a couple of conventions there every year, but uh, he always loves seeing all of the cosplay that everyone does at Galley, because he says, you know, it's clear that people have put so much time and energy and love into each of their costumes. You know, it's, it, you know, not always the biggest kind of costume. You know, it's not big mecha suits very often or anything like that, but it is love and attention and detail. And he really, really had just so much praise. Uh, and this is from a man who sees quite a lot of cosplay in a lot of conventions. <laughs> nice. I'd say one last thing that I I want to highlight or I want you to highlight is the Mihu panel, uh, which was the follow up. You know, I remember last year we came out of the closing ceremonies for last year's convention and you wanted to record right then and there because of the impact of the Gallifrey Waits No More panel that year. And it demanded a follow up and you moderated an incredible one. Thank you. And now I was really happy with how that panel came together in the end. There were so many fantastic women on the panel that I'm just sort of eternally grateful to all of the people who participated in this follow-up. You know, I really felt that we needed a space to process everything that had happened, to really get to talk through it and talk about how we felt, but also to really come up with like concrete ways that we could take action moving forward, whether it was just telling people something as simple as, you know, we are here for you, we will hear you, we will believe you, and we will support you in whatever it is that you want to do, to the big things of, you know, how do we as fans use our power to hold franchises and studios accountable and protect the people who are working on the properties that we love. So I do want to do a quick shout out to writer Sarah Dollard and director Rachel Talalay, uh, who were on last year's panel and so graciously agreed to join us again this year for a follow-up discussion to Deb Stanish, who was the moderator of last year's panel and came back again to talk about what it was like then and what we can do moving forward. And then to the other panelists, Amanda Ray Prescott, Audrelyn Atkins-Reeves, Heather Berberet, Lauren Bancroft, and Lee Gao, because they were all so incredible, so amazing, had such powerful things to say, uh, and really made this a supportive place to be at the convention. So I am uh, just incredibly grateful to everybody who participated and everybody who was in the audience, and really, really thankful that we were able to have that moment to follow up on it. Mm. I suppose we should probably explain to people who weren't at Gallifrey One but who follow us on social media 
why there were so many pictures of carpet. <laughs> I mean, do you really need an explanation other than the fact that the carpet is beautiful and deserves to be memorialized in all of its technicolor glory? And it's going to have to be memorialized because its day is done. The Marriott yes. has been slowly over the last couple of years renovating from top to bottom and they're finally hitting bottom and the iconic multicolored uh primary colored practically carpets in the ballrooms and the convention level are finally going to be taken up and Sean Lyon and his team brought out the carpet squares and there was an emotional farewell ceremony uh at the closing ceremonies for the carpet when next we return to Gallifrey 1 the place will look very very different people didn't handle the changes in the lobby very well this could possibly be traumatic they will be selling off bits of the carpet for charity. So just bless all Doctor Who fans, because this is a thing we will do. I'm so sorry to whoever buys the square of carpet that I spilled wine on this year. That was an accident. Um, but I hope you enjoy your bit of carpet anyways. And uh, Chip, you had a kind of incredible moment over the weekend because you took a picture of a bunch of people taking selfies on the carpet. And uh, somebody very interesting found that photo. This is hilarious. Yeah. So, yeah, like a, a lot of people were taking selfies of themselves lying down with the carpet in the background, memorializing the carpet, et cetera, and so on. And I, of course, because I'm meta that way, took a picture of people taking their pictures against it. And it's a good picture, if I do say so myself. And somebody got it into the hands of one Jennifer Termini, who is the interior designer who designed the carpet 10 years ago. Which yeah. is hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, Can you imagine doing this job 10 years ago, just being like, yeah, designed a carpet. And then 10 years later, it's just being like, why are all these people taking selfies on the carpet? Why is everybody getting emotional about my carpet? <laughs> oh, she was so gracious about it. She was so happy about it. And of course, I and somebody else immediately sent her pictures of the one woman who was wearing a full length skirt with that carpet pattern this year. We're going to have just as much fun at Gallifrey One next year, no matter what the carpet pattern is. But when the convention's been going with that same thing of continuity for 10 years, you know, people get attached. And it's a symbol. It becomes a symbol of the convention itself. And 10 years from now, there will be a different pattern as a symbol. But um, just hilarious. And, and, and it made me feel good that the interior designer, who, who was proud of the work and up until very, very recently had a carpet square of that uh, pattern herself felt appreciated always nice to be appreciated for good work yeah speaking of appreciating people for good work uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the 13th doctor comic that titan comics produces and jody hauser writes and rachel stott draws and we did finally have a chance to catch up with them during the convention itself and we talked to them about how they make the comic and what changed for Rachel from drawing Peter Capaldi to drawing Jodie Whittaker? And let's listen to that right now. Joining us at Gallifrey One, about two-thirds of the way through the convention, are the current creative team for the Doctor Who 13th comic book, Jodie Hauser and Rachel Stott, in one place together. Woo! Hello! <laughs> Hello. Thank you both so much for joining us. This is not, not 
boat, your first galley. Uh, but how are you enjoying your weekend? How are you enjoying everything so far? I mean, it's great. It's the first galley I've been able to hang out with Rachel, so that's always a plus. Yes, and I've been saying we've been walking around like bookends because we're like <laughs> just like walking around and making schemes and plans. <laughs> schemes and plans about Doctor Who, perhaps? No, just about no. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to take over the world. Exactly, <laughs> Pinky in the brain. But which one's which? <laughs> right now, I feel a little bit more like a pinky. Yeah, same. I think we were two pinkies then. <laughs> oh, this is going to go really well. <laughs> You've got a little bit of a fan following, following you around at this convention this year. You've got like groups of girls that are just coming up and following you. That's pretty awesome. I mean, it's always cool when you get to go to conventions and meet the people who are actually reading the books because sometimes it just almost feels like you're writing or drawing in a vacuum. But then you go out and it's like, oh, people actually are re- paying attention and reading this. Yeah, the first girl that spoke to us on the Titan panel today when she came up and she, like, it was this really sincere moment of saying how much she liked the book and it was like, oh, wow, like, when people say it, you're like, I know it probably isn't, like, a huge thing for them, but, like, for us, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People like it. So I did manage to catch both of you on one panel earlier today, the uh, Power of Comics panel, talking about image and representation um, in comic books. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for everything that you were talking about, about showing you know actual diverse groups of people and making sure that stories were actually representative. Um, it's been fantastic, you know, with the Thirteenth Doctor comic having both the TARDIS team, but also you know a fully kind of lived in, realized world for them to go around in. It's been fantastic to have that represented. Yeah, I mean, that's that's something I think that we're seeing more and more discussion about how important it is, especially for kids and younger adults to see themselves in fiction. And I'm glad that, you know, with Doctor Who and just so many other franchises that a lot of us grew up with, it, they are just having that level of representation that a lot more people feel they can get into science fiction or comics and see someone who looks like them. And also because like, those kind of characters are getting more popular, it means that the publishers are realizing they have to put people that look like that also behind the scenes creating the books. So then when people come to Comic-Cons, they see people that look like them also up on panels talking and stuff, which is also like, so it's extra good I don't write, so I don't talk good either. (laughs) Could you tell us a little bit about the timing of when you started? You just finished, the, at least as far as the publication is concerned, the first four-part story arc has just been completed. Uh, When did you all start working on it, and did your work on it change as the show started, you know, being produced? And, you know, was it it different uh, at the beginning when you only had stills and scripts? (laughs) Well, I mean, very early on, uh, I had to start coming up with at least the concept for the first arc before I really knew anything about the Doctor and the Companions, because we had to seed it into the backups in the Road to the 13th Doctor comic. So we had to do stories for 10, 11, and 12 that would lead up to the introduction of 13 so that was more coming up with like here's a doctor who idea than just hoping that the 13th doctor would still be the type of person who you know goes around helping people <laughs> to be fair it would it would have been a very strange show if that just stopped being the case <laughs> would uh, have been a really big change i think yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going for a murder angle this season <laughs> um, but yeah so it was sort of the idea behind those backups and then the first arc was that there was a occurrence that 
10, 11, and 12 had witnessed, but 13 was actually going to be the one that was finally in a position to help the person in need there. Uh, so again, that's a that's something that's stretching across the different incarnations. So that was pretty easy to, you know, at least start building that idea and just do something that seemed like a fun Doctor Who story. But uh, I know to start, I had just a few pages of script, not even the full first script, and some character descriptions so it wasn't a ton to work with especially when it's sort of like three and a half new characters you could say mm-hmm. um, but it was it was just enough to at least you know get going and get to the point where Rachel and Enrica could be working on the book and uh, the first issue uh, we were doing the last lettering pass just as the first episode aired so we were able to go back and tweak dialogue and things so it sounded more like they actually do on the show yeah and then of course like once you've got one 40-minute episode, uh, compared to just having stills and, like, snippets of bits, it feels like a wealth of information. You're like, yes, we have, like, whole minutes of footage. This is incredible. <laughs> so, yeah, it was nice, because as soon as you did that, it sort of clicked. Like, the first issue, I think, came across really well anyway, considering mm-hmm. the fact that, especially, you know, you only had snippets of stuff. But, like, after that, after that first episode, it was great. We just had, you could really run from there. Does the body language of the characters change once you see them move? Oh, one big thing was the way Jody points her sonic, because uh, Capaldi does it like a little instrument, so he'll like, hold it between his fingers and do it like a spirit level or something, whereas Jody just like, poof, like whips <laughs> her arm out and like points it really aggressively. So when I did the first issue, she doesn't quite do that. She does it in a few panels, but not all the way through. And by the second one, I was like, oh, right, nope, that's how she points the sonic. So there's little things like that. That's like... I, I did have someone call me out this weekend because they pointed out, well, in the first issue, Graham calls the doctor doctor and then after that he calls her doc but I don't think he really said doc in the first episode so at the time we were finishing up that issue we didn't actually know yet yeah it's one of those things that changes over time so you have to follow through it's like the little character traits that take a while to develop even in the show and then for us to pick up on yeah but you know what time is wonky as we have learned on Doctor (laughs) Who so so um the 12th Doctor and the 13th Doctor are very different. You drew both uh, so so beautifully, but you had, I imagine you had to create a new language. Um, and Jody, the, the ethos of the show seems to have changed a lot. Um, and I noticed, especially in the most recent issue, uh, bits about the scientist who was uh, trying to solve the problem all by herself and the Doctor chiding her for trying to do it all alone without a team those all feel very much like Chibnall Doctor Who could you tell us a little bit about uh, making the shift uh, or or what kind of guidance you got from um, the BBC on what kind of stories and what kind of art uh, to produce for this story I mean I don't think at least on my end I specifically got any sort of Direction on the type of story they wanted. I think it was more about me pitching them ideas and then, you know, they get approved or they don't. But, I mean, I think for me the really strong guiding factor is that first trailer that they released when she calls her companions her new best friends. And to me that just sums up what this era of the show is going to feel like so much and just that choice that she makes in that moment. So that's something I've just definitely tried to echo through the story is just she has that level of connection with people and she really understands you know that you need people in your life like that whereas you know certain other incarnations of the doctor have been a lot more standoffish and hesitant to form those bonds yeah i mean in terms of the artwork like uh i'm guessing it's public record anyway but obviously when uh 
uh, it went from Moffat to Chibnall, they changed all the licensed people as well that look after all the books and stuff. So with Capaldi, it was sort of a case that they just sort of let us do our own thing and it wasn't... Um, they didn't really ever send notes back unless it was something major that clashed with something in the show. Whereas this time, it feels like they're... Um, that, like they've got, like you said, they've got a definite vision for what the Doctor will be. So it's never anything that's like intrusive. Like you never gain notes. You're like ah, but it's always just them sort of guiding the brand a bit more. Um, but it makes it interesting. Yeah, but you don't really get anything that's like crazy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the first story arc has been absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for your work on that. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time out of uh, your galley to come and talk to us and uh, have fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having us. <laughs> Jody Hauser and Rachel Stott are going to be back with a new story arc for the Doctor and Fam in issue five, which should be in shops on March 6th. And congratulations to Rachel for her upcoming first Marvel gig and her first superhero gig, drawing Shuri from the Black Panthers universe, uh, issue number eight. And I believe that's an issue where Shuri has reclaimed the Black Panther mantle. Anyway, that's going to be loads of fun for Rachel to draw, I think. And for everybody who is eagerly awaiting the new Captain Marvel movie, you should be excited to know that Jody is working on Captain Marvel Braver and Mightier, uh, which is coming out on February 27th, as well as she's doing more issues of Star Wars Age of the Republic and a prequel to Stranger Things in May. So lots of exciting, cool projects coming up for our favorite people. So we asked you to stick around for the end of this week in time travel today, and we're sad to say that this is actually the end of this week in time travel. Alyssa has a bit of an announcement to make. Yeah, um, this has been a really incredible two years of my life uh, working on this podcast, and I've just had the time of my life doing it with Chip, and if I could continue doing it, I would. Um, and I had just really a fantastic time meeting so many of those of you who listened to the podcast at Galley this weekend. Um, but uh, unfortunately, it's time for me to uh, take a little bit of a step back. I'm about to uh, embark on a really big and really exciting career change, um, which I'll hopefully be able to tell everybody about shortly. Um, but it is going to take up a significant portion of my life moving forward um, to the point that I've described the change to people as uh, I will slowly become not a human anymore. <laughs> it's going to take up a quite a big chunk of my life. Um, and I just wouldn't be able to devote the time that I should be to um, any of my fandom projects. So I'm going to be uh, taking a step back from the world of fandom for a little while um, to focus on this new and exciting project ahead of me. Um, and so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, this is going to be uh, the last episode of This Week in Time Travel. So I am so grateful for all of you who have listened and supported the podcast. I'm sorry to be leaving, um, but uh, just rest assured that um, it is a cool and exciting thing that's pulling me away. And sometimes you have too many 
cool and exciting things in your life to choose from. And some things need to take a little bit of a backseat for a little while. Um, but this is not goodbye. I am not vanishing forever. Uh, and I'll hopefully uh, be back to talk in your ears in the future. In the meantime, uh, Alyssa, you're still going to be here and there if only very briefly on Twitter on your Whovian feminism account, right? Yes, I should be at the very least. We'll we'll see how things go moving forward. Uh, it's a lot of promises, promises at the moment that I hope I'll be able to keep. <laughs> right, uh, and I'm um, and follow follow Alyssa on Twitter, and uh, when she's able to announce what her next steps are, I'm sure she'll be able to do so. Um, we were talking uh, in a group of friends uh, about this impending uh, change, and one of our friends. Uh, started drawing analogies to companions departing the series, uh, and it's it's a it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to let go of this week in time travel. It's a hard thing to see you, Alyssa, go off into a different direction. But this is what happens. This is what we've come to see. Whenever the showrunner changes, the doctor changes, a companion leaves the show, change is inevitable, and. The great thing about change is you get to see what happens next. So I had no intention of continuing this week in time travel without Alyssa. This is a 50-50 podcast. This is not my thing. So I will return to Doctor Who podcasting in some capacity or another in the near future after I've had a chance to figure out what that is. So I guess we need to take some time to say a few last words of thanks for the yeah. pe- to the people who helped us get here. Uh, so we'll start off with the thanks that we give at the end of every episode. It still rings true now. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our music, to David Lohr for our art, and for Jason Snell for hosting us on the Incomparable Network. Yeah, uh, a special thanks to uh, Jason because uh, this is the first time I've ever been involved with a podcast on a network. And it, you know, it made me feel like a part of a greater whole. And that was terrific. Uh, thanks so much to the listeners who checked the box for this week in time travel on the incomparable members program. Um, you gave us some support, uh, some actual financial support for podcasting, which is something that had never happened to me before, but uh, it was so good to just to have to literally have people checking a box and indicating support for the podcast. Also, special thanks to our frequent third chair, Rachel Donner, who was with us right from the beginning. And um, we, you know, it was it was it was terrific to have uh, your support and participation, Rachel. We also have to say thank you to all of the guests that have joined us over the past two years. Kyle Anderson, Tom Adda, Paul Booth, Lisa Bowerman, Graham Burke, Lee Gao, Jenny Colgan, Paul Cornell, Crystal D, Ken Deep, Kara Dennison, Shannon Dohar, Sarah Dollard, Erica Ensign, Warren Fry, Mark Goodacre, Toby Hadoak, Stephen Warren Hill, Jody Hauser, Waris Hussein, Derek Compare, Andrew Looney, Katie Manning, Petra Meyer, Rona Monroe, Liz Miles, Haley Neubauer, Joy Piedmont, Amanda Ray Prescott, Kim Rogers, Stephen Shapansky, Kathleen Showalter, Riley Silverman, Nathan Scresslett, Robert Smith, Jason Snell, Eric Stadnick, Deb Stanish, Elisa Stern, Rachel Stott, Shannon Sutterth, Rachel Tolalay, Glenn Weldon, and Sage Young. Holy crap, that was a lot of people. Was. Was a very, very wonderful group of people. 
Yes, it was. So we are signing off this week in time travel, and those episodes will still remain at, available at theincomparable.com slash twit or at thisweekintimetravel.com. Follow the further adventures of Alyssa Frankie at Whovian Feminism on Twitter, and you can still find me at numeral two minute time lord, which may someday refer to a podcast again. Never know. Thanks for listening to us. Bye-bye.